So when I was a younger man and living with my parents, um, there was one morning when I went outside to go get the mail, and uh, as I did, I realized as the door swung shut behind me that I had locked myself out and forgotten to bring the keys with me. Now, uh, I, it's moments like that that I tell myself, you know, um, don't panic. You're pretty smart. You can figure this out. So I make my way around the perimeter of the house, checking all the doors, see if there's any that happen to be left unlocked. Of course not, because of how uh, paranoid my parents are. And then um, I remembered, though, at that moment that I always leave the crack of my bathroom window open to air out the bathroom upstairs on the second floor. And so I went around the side of the house, and uh, fortunately in the backyard, we found one of the big ladders that we had, set it up, not tall enough, okay? And so, come on, put that brilliant mind to work, buddy. And so I got two of the recycle bins and the green bin, put those two together, stacked the ladder on top, and climbed, made my way up, and I realized, just a little bit out of reach, but if I just jump, I'll be able to reach that ledge, grab onto the ledge. <laughs> now, before you think, you're like, he blew it. No, I made it. I jumped and I grabbed on. And then, of course, I was realizing as I was hanging on there, I have perhaps made a terrible mistake because I couldn't reach the ladder anymore. And so I was hanging there, much like the picture from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation up on the big screen, and realizing I don't know what to do. But fortunately, uh, I was able to use my other hand to pry off the, the window screen and just toss it down behind me, grip, get a good grip on, with both hands, pry open the window, and pull myself up. And so I started uh, snaking my way into the bathroom, thinking that, okay, I'm doing just fine, when uh, I realized suddenly, like, I think I'm stuck. And so I was standing there, stuffed halfway through the window, my legs dangling out, and thinking to myself, oh no, I really have made a terrible mistake. And I'm praying that my parents wouldn't come home, that neighbors or the police would not find me like this. You see, at that moment, all those times I thought I was so smart, it turns out that I wasn't very wise. Obviously, I survived, okay? I'm here this morning. But I find that probably for many of us, that we are facing perhaps less idiotic but more meaningful situations or decisions about your finances, about your friendships, about your family, about your future, where you also feel stuck. And I know that knowing many of you, you are such a smart group of people. But the question this morning is, in the eyes of the Lord, are you wise? So if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's uh, plenty of Bibles uh, under the seats in front of you. And if you don't own one, please take that Bible home with you. Um, those are the Bibles that we give away for free. We want you to own one so you're not stealing. But we're in this series called Clear, where we're learning about in our confusing and conflicting world that we live in today, to be able to see our lives clearly through the countercultural lens of the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus. And we talked about last time as we introduced the book that the ancient city of Corinth was this major bustling seaside city where many cultures and religions intermingled together. And that because of the influence of Greco-Roman culture and this cosmopolitan culture that had formed around all these expats and various people mingling, that the high value that people had developed was personal success, personal pleasure. And that when it came to religions, that you just kind of worshipped whatever God fit your needs. 
whatever would help you, maybe in your financial situation or to have kids or this, that, and the other. You would pick and choose like a buffet. And the problem was that in this city that there was a group of believers that formed a church and some of those same values of their society had begun to blur the eyes of the Christians living there. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them. He's the one who helped plant this church in Corinth that they might hear from him to see their lives and their worlds more clearly. And so last week we learned that the big idea of the entire book in chapter 1 starting is that the church is called to live through the lens of our identity in Christ, that as we experience the unearned grace of God, that we're able to grow in holiness and in unity together, distinct from the world and the way that society lives. Now, this week, the focus is on the issue of wisdom. You're going to see in this chapter. And here's how it connects to last time. If identity defines who you are, then what wisdom does is determines where you're going to go. In other words, how you see your life, how you're going to make decisions. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Let's stop right there. So the theme that you're going to see in this passage, and we kind of cut it off last week, uh, but you even see it starting in verse 17, is the relationship between wisdom and power. In that wisdom isn't just knowledge, because you can have a lot of information, but not know what to do with it at all. What wisdom is, wisdom is the power to go down the right road, to make the right choice, to reach your desired destination. It's the difference between just having the address number to the place you want to go and having an actual map to get you there, get you there. That's wisdom. And so we're immediately confronted in this passage with what wisdom do you follow? In verse 18, it starts off, letting us know that the world's path of wisdom leads to perishing. And that word is very interesting because it is, and to give you kind of a pastoral language nerdy thing, it's not just like uh, talking about death someday. It's an active, ongoing verb. And so what it means is it's the ongoing process of that if you are going down this certain road of wisdom, that it's, there's, you're going through this ongoing process of dying a little bit, day by day. That the way you see your life, the attitudes that you have, the beliefs that you hold are steering towards destruction in your daily decisions and directions and relations apart from the life and goodness of Jesus. But in contrast, a second path makes itself available that the wisdom of God saves us. It has power to save us both in this life, in the decisions that we make, in the paths that we choose, and in the life to come. And so the question is, what separates these two things? Verse 18 tells us that wisdom is determined by how we respond to the word about the cross, the folly of the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to some who are perishing, but saves those through the power of God, right? And so what that is, the word about the cross is the good news that a sinless son of God dies on a cross for the sinfulness of mankind. 
not because we were good enough, not because we worked hard enough, but by grace. So we're able to receive the love, the forgiveness, the acceptance of God through the sacrifice of his son. Now that sounds like a really wonderful thing, but I want you to think about why does that seem like folly to the rest of the world? So picture in your minds, if you're living in the first century, this so-called Messiah suffers a cruel and shameful death that's reserved for the worst criminals and for terrorists in the Roman Empire. And that he's rejected by the very people he came to save. He's deserted by his own disciples. He is executed by the appropriate, proper authorities. We see that often in our society, that if somebody is caught by the police or suffers a judgment in, the, in our judicial system, we assume their guilt. And so this person doesn't seem like much of a God or a Savior to us. To the average person in the first century, Corinth, <coughs> excuse me, he would seem powerless to save himself, much less us. And so it would be foolish for me to put my faith in him and follow him. Yet in verse 19, God declares, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, this is a, one of those really cool quotes, but I want you to see how charged it is. It's a quote directly from scriptures in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And here's why Paul uses this verse. Because in the Old Testament, these Israelite politicians, they scheme to deter the Assyrians from, uh, from attacking them by forming an alliance with one of their enemies, Egypt. And so they, the Israelite politicians scheme, hey, Egypt, let's make a pact, even though we're historical enemies. And they do that instead of turning to God for help. And by doing that, by making that pact, it becomes the very thing that provokes Assyria to invade and crush Jerusalem. And so it is a picture for all the people who, who knew uh, Jewish history back then to see the limitedness of the worldly wisdom apart from God and how it fails. And so I wonder for you and I, like the people of Corinth, like the people of Israel back then, how often do you and I abandon God's wisdom when it's inconvenient, when it's inconsistent with my will and my way, when I, and I decide I'm going to try to figure it out on my own and deceive myself as if I have the wisdom and the power to move my situation in the right direction on my own apart from God. I wonder how many of us do that. I shouldn't say that. I think all of us do that. It's more of a question of how often do you think you do that? As if God is just a little bit smarter than me. And so he's presented a choice, but you know what? He is like a PhD, but I'm, I'm at least a master's degree. And so I can come up with my own uh, idea or come up with a better idea or a better outcome than God. <laughs> now, we, you know that sounds ridiculous, but you know that you and I think, think that way sometimes. And so in verse 20, Paul says, where are the wise challengers to God? Is it the Jewish religious scribes of the law? Do they have something that they can bring to challenge the wisdom of God? How about non-Jewish people who are into that Greco-Roman philosophy and debating? God humbles all of them. He has made foolish the wisdom of this world because the seeming folly and failure of the cross in Jesus' death is how God actually reveals his power and wisdom to give us life. And so the big idea of the text this morning is how we respond to the cross determines if the wisdom that we're following has power to guide us in the right direction. If the decisions that you're making, if the opinions that you're having, 
lead to life or they lead to destruction. And so I want to start off this morning by reminding you that the wisest thing that you can do in life is to believe and receive Jesus, who is crucified for our sin as our Savior, that if you don't get that straight, no other wisdom in this life matters because this issue of the cross determines our identity, our direction, and our destination. And so many times as a pastor, people will come to me seeking wisdom and ask, well, what's the church's position on homosexual people? They need Jesus. What's the church's position on heterosexual people? They need Jesus. What's the church's position on things like if you're rich or poor? They need Jesus. What is the church's position on uh, if somebody has a, a PhD or has a GED? They need Jesus. What's your, the church's position on sexual immorality versus virginity? All those people need Jesus. What is your position on people who are Republicans or on Democrats? They need Jesus. That's our position because that's where wisdom starts and where wisdom ends. Now, you should be thinking, yes, I get it. Yes, I want to love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. But in this life, I also have real problems and real burdens today, Pastor Josh, that I need wisdom for. How does believing Jesus help with that? That's just pie in the sky stuff. The wisdom and power of God doesn't just determine your eternal destiny, but it also shapes your current trajectory. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord, that's the worship and the fear of God, is the beginning of what? Wisdom. That means that when you worship God, when you trust in God, that that is the foundation on which you build your attitudes, your actions, and your decisions. That if your wisdom in life is based on Jesus and on the cross, that gives us the perspective and the power to do the right thing in holiness or in relationships, in our confusion and in our conflicts. And you're going to see that more clearly as we get into later chapters of 1 Corinthians, that there's wisdom from the cross to deal with sex and marriage and singleness and conflicts. So this isn't just about your eternal destiny, but you are perishing day by day. You're making decisions that are killing you slowly, one inch at a time perhaps, but there's also wisdom that, and power that comes from God that gives us life, not just life forever in the someday, but today. But unfortunately, like the Corinthians, uh, many of us say we follow Jesus yet live foolishly, just like the people of Corinth. Why do we do that? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 21 starts off revealing to us one of the reasons why people have trouble trusting in the folly of God is that we can't really know God 
by our own devices, by our own wisdom and observations and reason, that you can't really know God through the worldly wisdom of being good enough or being smart enough or being observant enough, but only by trusting in Jesus' death on a cross to save us is how we genuinely get to know Him and connect with Him by faith. And yet, it's foolishness to the world because it doesn't fit our definition of wisdom in this life, does it? In verse 22, it says that Jewish people, they they can't take this because they demanded of Jesus a miraculous sign from him. It tells us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, to prove that he was the Messiah. Now, here's the problem. Why do they keep demanding signs from Jesus all throughout the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, when he had given so many in that book? He healed people who were blind, people who were mute, people who were deaf, people who were crippled, people who were lepers, people who were demon-possessed. He fed 5,000 people. Then he fed 4,000 people. Then he walked on water. Then he commanded the wind and the waves. Then he raised a dead girl. I think that's probably pretty much enough signs, right? What are the Jewish religious Pharisees really looking for? You see, they were trying to manipulate Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that they want. Jesus, demonstrate your heavenly authority to us so that we know you can overthrow our Roman oppressors, and that you will establish Israel as, if you're really the Messiah King, you're going to establish Israel as a new kingdom empire over the world of its own. And so to the Jewish people and to the Jewish religious leaders, wisdom is about control. Instead of Jesus coming and I bow to him as king, I want you, Jesus, to come and bow to us in our desires and our agenda. Now for the non-Jewish people, who grew up in Greco-Roman culture, they highly value intellect and insight as a means to gain more status, more success, more influence. Paul comes to Athens, and at the Areopagus, people are spending the whole day there arguing back and forth about philosophy and and insights about this, that, and the other to prove who is greater and who is more successful in life. But the purpose of attaining wisdom is to advance yourself and achieve my goals. So in verse 23, Jesus crucified is a stumbling block to the Jewish people because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, God declared that all people who are executed and their bodies hung from a tree are considered cursed by God. Isn't that exactly the reason Jesus was nailed on a cross? To carry the curse of our sin and our shame and our separation from God so that we don't have to. But that's unacceptable. That's a stumbling block to the Jewish people of his time because they expected Messiah to come in glory, not shame. And of course, the cross is silly to non-Jewish people because in Greco-Roman culture, real wisdom achieves influence and power. But a God who lets his own son die to save others is a display of weakness, humiliation. It's folly. But Paul responds in verse 24 and 25 to those who receive and believe the good news about Jesus, that Jesus is both the wisdom of God and the power of God, that through the shame and the pain of the cross, Jesus overcomes the power of sin in his sacrifice. He overcomes the power of death in his resurrection, that even if you and I are the most wise, most powerful person in the world, and you lived a thousand lifetimes, that our knowledge and our wisdom and our power will be still limited, just a drop in the bucket compared with God. 
So the folly of the cross turns the wisdom and the power of this world upside down because the world says wisdom is whatever gives you power to gain control, to gain advantage for yourself. But God says through the cross's weakness and humility that that's how Jesus earns victory, that through him we can experience the wisdom and power of God in our lives because he came in shame and weakness. So I want to start off by asking you, how are you using worldly wisdom to gain control? To perhaps achieve a goal by your own power, to go where you want to go, to get what you want to get at work or at home, in your finances, in your family, in your struggles. And I wonder how many of us have come here this morning as we are relying on our own control, our own power, how many of you, you feel the weight of it, that this is not sustainable? How long can I rely on my own strength and my own intellect before I crack? I want to challenge you, instead of being controlled by fear, frustration, our self-interest, which is exactly all three of those things drives our need to be in control, to gain things for ourselves, to have power or influence. What if God could turn your wisdom upside down? You see, the gospel is all about, instead of showing the world how much better God is at wielding the kind of power and wisdom that the world expects, that Jesus comes in humility, in weakness of the cross. He reveals that he has wisdom and power to forgive sins, to heal our hearts, to raise the dead, to change our direction and our destination, to turn our world upside down so that he can turn our lives right side up. And so I wonder if you are recognizing what are the ways that I am bowing to a wisdom that is about trying to achieve power and gain for myself and seeing that it, the, the cracks and the faults in that. Okay, that sounds nice, but if Jesus is our wisdom and power, how exactly do you experience that in this life? I've been following Jesus for a long time. I don't necessarily feel any wiser than I did 10 years ago. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the world, to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to shame uh, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 26, Paul says, remember when you got saved, when God called you to faith, you were probably at a very low point because you were experiencing conviction of your sin, crisis in your situation. And at that moment, you got honest with yourself, just like the Corinthians. You realized, I'm not so wise, I'm not so powerful, I'm not so privileged. 
and the choices I'm making are headed in the wrong direction, that I've been chasing like the world, the wisdom of the world, the pleasures and treasures of this life, but it's not giving me freedom. It's making me a slave. Like the wisdom of the world, I've been worshiping my education or my entertainment, my career, and my relationships. But they're not fulfilling me by putting these things on this pedestal like the world tells me to. It's actually killing me. I'm trying to balance it all and have this perfectly balanced life and be healthy in all these different areas, and I can't do it. Apart from Jesus, I am perishing, not flourishing. But the good news in verse 27 through 29 is that God chose people who are honest about their spiritual poverty, who know that they are foolish and weak and lowly and nobodies apart from Christ. And He chose them over the arrogant and the self-sufficient who think that they are wise and strong and somebodies in the eyes of the world, so that no one can boast before God that I figured it out. I fixed my finances, my friendships, my family, my future are all stable if everything just holds itself in position by my own intellect, by my influence, by my importance, that I'm able to make all the right decisions and be a good person and save myself from destruction. Nobody can do all those things, and no wisdom of this world can do those things. But Jesus can. And so in verse 30, he reminds us, because God called you into Christ, into his family, into his identity, into his intimacy, that Jesus gives us the wisdom of God, that he makes us right with God, that he's making us holy, sanctified for God, and that he pays our redemption price as God on a cross. So that in verse 31, if you're going to boast, boast in what Jesus has done instead of all the things we fail to do. So how do you experience the wisdom and power of God? Jesus is God's wisdom and power for those who are humble enough and honest enough about being foolish and weak apart from Him. It's as simple as that. That's why in James chapter 4, verse 6, quoting Old Testament Scripture, it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble that the glory of the gospel is mercy toward those who know they need it, the very people that worldly wisdom writes off. Do you know that you are foolish and weak apart from Christ? But the good news is if you come to Jesus, no one gets sent away empty-handed or empty except those who are already full of themselves. When I was a youth pastor uh, we, uh, many, many years ago, this is back in the early 2000s, uh, drove a bunch of kids down to L.A. for a Christian conference. As, as we were driving up this steep incline up the grapevine on I-5, uh, the van started to make this weird hitching sound. And uh, unfortunately, I was in the fast lane, and so the van started to lose power as we were going up the incline. And then I realized suddenly, we're just coasting. I was like, uh-oh, this is not good. And we're in the fast lane, so I had to pull over, unfortunately, on the left side. And of course, I was thinking to myself, okay, guys, with a team of youth counselors, we're pretty smart. Let's figure this out. So we popped the hood, confident in our human wisdom to fix the problem. And so none of us mechanics, sitting there checking the oil, checking the radiator, 
doing all the things, looking under, <laughs> under the car, laying hands on the hood of the car and praying over it for healing. Nothing worked. And now, you need to understand, this was the days before uh, the average person carried a cell phone. Like, I think cell phones back then were like these ginormous like, devices. So none of us had a cell phone. So me and uh, the, one of the other youth counselors, his name was Billy, uh, we had to run across five lanes of the freeway to get to the emergency call box for help. It was not a good day for me. Fortunately, we were able to make it, got a tow truck, towed us to a nearby town, and we had to wait for the rental car agency back in the Bay Area to send, drive out a new van for us. Took another seven hours sitting in this podunk town up in the grapevine. Finally arrived in LA, and we're about two miles out from the hotel when, tung, 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 tung. Car, this second van breaks down too. And then I'm telling you, I thought to myself, you know what? I've had enough. I've had enough of these vans, and I've had enough of you, God. And so I instructed the kids. Are there any parents that were, who had kids there? That, okay, good. So I instructed the kids, get your baggage. We're going to walk these last two miles <laughs> in the dark to our hotel in downtown LA. And so we walked. Now, as we're about two blocks out from the hotel, like we're, you know, these poor kids, I mean, we had middle schoolers with us too, so 11 years, 12 years, dragging these gigantic suitcases, you know, behind them. And so, I'm so sorry, uh, on behalf of myself. And um, as, we're, as we're walking along those last two blocks, Billy comes driving up next to us, like in the van, because I told him to wait back there for, for the, the tow truck to come. And he just kind of drives on by us. I'm just like, what in the world? And so we catch up to him, and he and pulls over. I'm talking about what happened. Like, well, you know, I was sitting there in the van waiting for the tow truck, and I was just had time to pray, to just slow down and pray. Come before God, recognize, you know what? thought we knew a lot about cars. We don't. <laughs> so I came to God in my weakness and dependency and desperation. I need, and realizing that we need Jesus more than we need mechanical skills, more than we needed a new car, more than we needed fresh legs on young people. And somehow in that moment, this idea from Jesus popped into his head. That even though this van, it's an automatic trans- transmission. What if I popped it into neutral and then tried to start the car? For those of you who aren't car people, don't worry about it. But you're not, you're not supposed to do that, okay? And sure enough, it worked. Because instead of relying on his human intellect and influence, he was humble enough in that moment to wait on the wisdom and the power of God to lead him. And I wonder how often you and I miss out on that very wisdom and power of God in our daily lives as well as for eternity because we don't come to Jesus in humility, in dependency, in desperation. And so I wonder this morning, what problem you have? What challenge you're facing? What hurt you're carrying? What sin you're hiding that needs wisdom? And are you willing to get humble enough and honest enough about your weakness and your foolishness to tell him your need for him. Wisdom is related to power, the power to go in the right direction, to go a certain way, to make the right choices. And it reminds me a lot of the ability to drive, right? Like, you can have a car, but if you don't know how to drive, you don't have wisdom, right? You don't have the ability to get where you need to go. And I think about some of the scariest moments I've had in the car with my kids. And I know some of you are remembering, I've told stories about having an accident. It wasn't the accident that I had when, my, when two, of, two of my kids were little. But I remember the scariest moment for me was when I took my son Indy, he's our firstborn, 
home from the hospital for the first time. He was in the back of the car, you know, in, in, his, ca- in, in his baby seat, but he's sitting in a passenger seat in the back, and he's so small, he's so fragile. And so I drove home super slow, and my wife knew it. She could tell I was being like this, this chicken because I really was worried about him. That's when I was most scared. Now, the second most uh, scary moment was after, uh, some of you know that uh, we have an adopted daughter in our family, uh, when Emily finally got her driver's license. And I had to move from the driver's seat to the passenger seat. It was scary because up until then, I'm the one who holds the keys. I drive. I choose the route and I choose the destination. I choose the speed. And so when we change seats and she's the one driving, I have to trust her. It's about control because whoever's in the driver's seat is the one in control. Now, I want you to think about this when it comes to the wisdom that guides your life. Many of us find Jesus quite handy as long as he sits in the passenger seat. Because, you know, something might come up that requires his services. Jesus, I have a health problem. I need some help. Jesus, I messed up with my finances. I need a little bit of help. Thank you. You are a great passenger. I want you in the car, but I'm not sure I want you to drive. Now, if we want the power and wisdom of God, then we need Jesus to drive. That means if he's driving, I'm not in charge of things like my wallet. And that's scary, right? That means that if his wisdom and power are in control, then I, don't, I no longer just give some money now and then uh, when I feel generous. I don't spend money on whatever I want and my selfish desires without consulting him and allowing him to guide me because now it's about his guidance, his wallet, and that's scary. And if Jesus' wisdom and power are the one that's driving, my agenda is not in charge anymore. That means I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered goal in my life. It means that if Jesus' wisdom and power are in control, then I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to intimidate or manipulate or exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and I hand the keys over to him. But when we do so, then we are more alive than we've ever been before because it's not my life anymore, but it's his. And he has wisdom and he has power. And so there's two types of wisdom moving us in two different directions. And I want to ask you, are you clear about which track you're following? The world's way of wisdom is always going to lead to perishing day by day, but ultimately in the end. But the crucified Christ is life-giving. And how we respond to the cross determines if the wisdom we're following has power to guide us in the right direction or if those decisions are leading to destruction or towards life. And so this morning, may you surrender trying to use your wisdom to gain control. May you instead get humble enough and honest enough to come before Jesus in your spiritual poverty to give Him control and find that He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life that you've always been looking for. God, our Father, we welcome you this morning. You've been doing some surgery on us these past two Sundays, trying to change the way we look at ourselves, reforming our identity in Christ, and trying to change the way, the paths that we choose by giving us wisdom in Christ. And this morning, we recognize all of us sitting here, 
who claim we follow Jesus, yet continue to live foolishly in many ways. Would you convict us this morning to bring before you ways that we are allowing the wisdom of the world, self-interest, power, control, to rule our decisions and our direction. Would your Holy Spirit convict us of specific areas that we're doing that this morning? Would you turn our hearts to bring it to you with open hands and instead receive your wisdom? May the folly of the cross and its grace and its forgiveness and its acceptance and its power and its life Move us into life-giving ways of wisdom. We ask that you would do surgery on us even as we meditate on your word, as we listen to the words of music this morning.